0: Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen us, draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith. Amen. Amen. I knew I didn't say that loud enough when nobody lifted up their heads but me. Last week, Justin reminded us of the magnitude of who John the Baptist was. Samson, Joshua, Elijah rolled into one, a birth miraculous like Samson's, strong in the Lord, devoted from the very beginning of his life to a particular mission for God. Like Joshua, in the wilderness, bringing people through water to reconstitute the nation of Israel. Like Elijah the great prophet wearing robes of fur, confronting kings and overturning kingdoms. He's courageous, mighty John, denouncing Roman soldiers, Sadducees, priests, Pharisees, the king himself. He's scared of no one. And yet he's humble, John. He looks at Jesus and he says, I'm not worthy to touch his sandals. He looks at his disciple, Andrew, and says, you would be better off following him rather than me. He says when people confront him about the fact that the crowds are leaving him, I need to decrease so that Jesus can increase. He's courageous and yet humble. But joyful too. John dancing in the womb, worshiping better than any of us have ever worshiped before he was born. Dancing in the womb because he was close to Jesus. Mighty John, the hero of heroes, It's good to remember the magnitude of this man, and Jesus' statement is simple: "Of those born of women, there has been born no one greater than him." And yet, and yet, we see him now in prison, racked with doubt sending his messengers to Jesus, saying, are you even the Messiah? Should I be looking for somebody else? Most of us probably don't want our lowest moments preserved for posterity, right? You don't want your deepest doubts recorded for future generations to read. And yet this is what we get to see in John's life. This lowest moment where he wonders whether everything he said and did was wrong, whether he was following the wrong Messiah. We don't know why John doubted. Matthew doesn't tell us. It could be that he expected Jesus to come in judgment. After all, think about his preaching. Repent! Repent, the axe is laid at the root of the tree and every one that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There's one coming who will baptize you with fire. It could be that he expected judgment and when he didn't see Jesus doing that judgment, he grew disillusioned. He began to doubt. It could be that he was frustrated by Jesus' friendliness to sinners. The Pharisees were bothered that Jesus was so free with sinners and ate with them. And John, in all of his proclamations of repentance, may have felt exactly the same way. Jesus, you're eating with prostitutes. These are the people that I'm telling to beware because the kingdom is coming. It could have been that that frustration led to doubt. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. It could be Jesus' seeming laxity in spiritual disciplines. Jesus was fairly cavalier, or so it seemed, with the Sabbath. There's a moment in Matthew 9 when John's disciples come up to Jesus, and they're frustrated and bothered, and they say, John makes us fast. Even the Pharisees make their disciples fast, and yet y'all never fast. It could be that John looked at Jesus and he was puzzled and said, this doesn't make sense to me. I thought he would be something different. And his laxity with spiritual disciplines may have caused doubt to grow up in his mind. It could, of course, be very simply the fact that John was in prison. That he was alone. That he was scared. And that mighty John, when thrust in a dirty and slimy cell for weeks on end, may have begun to crack under the pressure. And that doubt grew up. If this was the Messiah, he would do something about me. We don't know why he doubted. Matthew doesn't tell us. And I'm convinced that Matthew doesn't tell us why John doubted on purpose. We don't need to know why he doubted. We just need to know that he did. We don't need to know that he doubted. I think this is the point. We just need to know that we are the only one who is doubted. I think this is part of why Matthew doesn't tell us why John doubts. Because each of us also gets hit by doubt at some point. And it's fairly easy in those moments to think, I'm the only one. John in the prison is like the perfect metaphor for doubt. Isolated, alone, trapped. Trapped. Unable to move, unable to see, unable to believe. And in those moments, we can say, God, are you even real? Is this true? We need to know that others before us, like mighty John, have doubted. That he was mighty is clear from Jesus's tribute to him after he sends these messengers back to him. Look at the second half of verse seven and onwards. Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Was it a nature cruise? Is that why you went out to the Jordan? Was he a fickle man like a reed that bends in every direction? And of course, the answer is no. He was an oak, strong as a mountain, strength and courage embodied. But even one that strong hit a moment of deep doubt. Jesus goes, did you go out to see someone in soft clothing? Was he a wealthy man? Somebody trendy who had all the stuff, a Sadducee, a king in a palace? Was he somebody living in luxury? And you go, no, he was Elijah in camel's hair, in leather, eating insects and honey. He was a monk of monks, an ascetic of ascetics, rugged, austere willing to discipline his body for the sake of the kingdom. And yet even one is self-disciplined as that, Doubt it. Jesus says, was he a prophet? And he says, yes, he was. He was more than a prophet. I tell you, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was the prophet of prophets, the very forerunner of the Messiah, the last moment in salvation history before God came crashing onto the scenes. He got to play the final note before the song changed. He was the one ordained from eternity past to pave the way for God in the flesh. He was the one that God chose to go and turn the nation back so that they would be ready to hear Jesus, the mightiest of prophets. And yet, even this great prophet doubted. Jesus' tribute makes it clear that he didn't doubt because he was weak. That much is evident from what Jesus says about him. I think most of us can probably remember a moment when someone when we realize that someone we deeply admire has struggled deeply with something. You know that moment when that teacher or the parent or the grandparent you look up to, you you see their struggle, you see the inconsistency of their faith, you see their temptation to a particular sin, and it can hit us and knock us down hard to have the world shaken like that. But it can also be something that sets us free. Something that sets us free from the belief that we're the only one who's weak. We're the only one who's questioned. We're the only one who doubts. I'm convinced that this is part of the reason why Matthew doesn't tell us why John doubts. We need to see this low moment of John. We need to know that we're not alone, that even mighty John, the one that Jesus said, he is as much as you thought he was and more, even mighty John struggled in this moment. We go through doubt for a multitude of reasons. For some, it's the sort of rational and academic questions. Biblical claims seem far-fetched. How do I put these together with modern science? Others go through doubt because The Bible seems incompatible and is incompatible with things our culture values. The culture believes something particular, values something particular about sex or money, about independence, about pleasure. And the biblical claims cut right across that. And it can be hard to hang on to both. Over the last few years, we've certainly seen plenty of Christians lose their faith because they couldn't deal with the biblical claims cutting right across cultural values and repudiating them. For some, doubt is simply the product of deep personal suffering. The question, Lord, how in the world could you let this happen to me? Are you even real? For others, and this is one that I find that I'm prey to, is the question of unanswered prayer. Lord, why haven't you answered this, can easily turn into, are you even real? We go through doubt for different reasons, but we need the story of John doubting so that we know that we aren't the only one. We don't need to know why he did, because each of us knows why we do. And I'm convinced this is why Matthew doesn't tell us what's behind John's doubt. But there's something far more important than knowing that John doubted. If all that we gain from this was the fact that we are not alone, it would be like being in the bottom of a well but having a friend with us. Of course, if you're stuck in the bottom of the well, it's better to have a friend with you. But isn't it better if the friend brings a rope or a flashlight, something to help It's good to know we're not alone, but there's a comfort that's beyond just knowing that we're not alone, and the comfort comes from the fact that Jesus responds to John's doubt. This is the true key. In other words, it's good to know we're not the only one, but it's even better to know that Jesus thinks enough of his own to respond to them. He responds when John asks the question. His response does two things. It's two overlapping, similar things, but they're distinct. The first is that he corrects John's vision. He corrects what John is looking for. And this is important because oftentimes our doubts come from the fact that we're just simply looking for the wrong thing. He corrects John's vision. And the second thing that his response does is that he reminds John to remember. This is also key in the moment of doubt. To remember, to remember. The correcting of his vision is seen in these verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered these messengers, and he said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. John was waiting for Jesus to judge. John was waiting for Jesus to baptize with fire. John was waiting for Jesus to cut down unfruitful trees. And seemingly when he didn't see it, he doubted. But Jesus, in this quotation of Isaiah 35, the chapter we read this morning, Jesus, in this quotation, corrects him. He straightens his vision out. And what he says in effect is the ministry of the Messiah also includes healing and deliverance. The ministry of the Messiah also includes forgiveness and restoration. It includes resurrection, not just judgment. John needed his vision enlarged, and honestly, so do we. After all, there's likely people in all of our lives that we struggle very greatly with. People for whom it's hard to say, I hope mercy for you. People that we don't want to see good things come to them. We actually would rather see them cut down to size a few notches. John needed his vision enlarged to see that even the judgment of God comes overshadowed and preceded and followed by mercy. That mercy triumphs over judgment. John needed his vision expanded, his vision corrected. And we need that too, oftentimes. After correcting his vision, Jesus offers a blessing. This is verse six. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Offended is like a technical term in the New Testament. Some translations will translate it scandalize. And what the word means is to stumble over something and fall into sin And ultimately, to stumble over something and fall into the ultimate sin, the sin of apostasy, of walking away from the faith. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me into lack of faith, is what he's saying. That blessing's a blessing, but it's also a warning. It's a warning to John that says, Hey John, my ministry includes deliverance and mercy, not just judgment. Don't stumble to the point that you lose your faith over the fact that I'm showing mercy to prostitutes, tax collectors, even Romans. Don't stumble and lose your faith over this enlarged version of ministry. It's a warning to the people listening to Jesus, a warning that says, don't stumble over the fact that my agenda isn't yours You can imagine these crowds clustered around Jesus listening to this whole interchange. And Jesus in this blessing is warning them, don't fall away because I don't fit your priorities or your agenda. When we frame it like that, we realize it's a warning that we all need to hear. Don't fall away because Jesus is not at your beck and call to do exactly what you want him to do. Don't fall away because his agenda is bigger than yours. Larger, more magnificent. There's moments when we realize, oh, Jesus, you don't care about that thing that I care about so much. And we need this warning. Don't stumble over that. Don't stumble over that. In our doubts, we also need our vision corrected. There's so many places where we could apply this. But if I go to that one that I'm so prevalent to, I doubt when God doesn't answer prayer. And I need my vision corrected. And enlarging a vision from God that actually says, you know, I actually care more about your heart than I do about your external circumstances. I want you to become one of those people who trust no matter what. I want you to become one of those people who will follow no matter what. I want you to become one of those people who's willing to wait And I need my heart corrected to realize that Jesus actually cares more about the development of my heart than he does about the answers to some particular prayers. We all need our vision corrected in different ways. And that was the first thing that Jesus did with John. It's like he said to John, John, I came to save sinners, not destroy them. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't fall away because I'm not what you expected exactly. To us, he says, I desire your heart. I desire you to trust me. Don't fall away because I don't fit everything that you expect out of light." His correcting of our vision teaches us to hope for the right things. But he didn't just correct his vision. He also reminded him to remember in those verses. It's like he said to John, look, do you see that person healed? Do you see that person forgiven? Do you see that person whose life has been restored and changed? He's saying to him, look, John, at the things you can't deny. And this is important for us in moments of deep doubt. When we're in the prison of deep doubt, we need to look at the things that Jesus has done that we cannot deny. Sometimes those things are in our own past. Where we look and we go, I know that was him. And we need to remember those moments. We need to hang on to the things that we can't write off. Sometimes they're in the lives of others. I'm struck by the fact that when Jesus said, remember the things you can't deny to John, he didn't list the things he had done for John. He listed the things that he had done for others, probably because John was in prison and would have tried to write off any of the ones about him. He said, look at others listen to their testimony, listen to the things that can't be denied. Remember my activity. It's a reminder that we need, when our faith is weak, to hang on to those things that we can't dismiss, to hang on to those things where we say, even if I don't have all the answers, at least I know you showed up here. We need to remember those moments. Easier to say than do, I suppose. And I'm sure it was easier to say to John than it was for John in prison to do it. But Jesus was encouraging him, John, hang on to those moments of light and darkness and let those fuel your trust. After Jesus affirmed John, after the messengers had left, after this sort of discussion about the greatness of John is over, he offers this funny critique of his culture. And I want to close with this. It's verse 16 to 19. It's a critique that's also a call, a call to the people listening, a call to us. He says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's a funny metaphor that he uses, one that they would have understood, because he's quoting a little children's proverb. And the children's proverb is the ancient equivalent of, I'll take my ball and go home. I'm not playing with you. It's the scene is children playing at weddings and funerals, and They're playing dress up and the one plays the funeral dirge and the others are supposed to mourn and pretend to be in funeral procession like good mourners. And then there's the wedding game. We pretend it's a feast and we play a song and you're supposed to dance and jump and sing. It's a children's game. And the proverb is you refuse to play my game. You didn't mourn when I sang the dirge. You didn't dance when I sang the wedding song. That's his critique of the generation, a funny critique, but a significant call. Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, you, you listening to me. Are you willing to play the game that John and I are singing? Are you willing to follow us in this dance? And you say, what's the game they're playing, the song they're singing, the dance they're dancing? And he's saying to them, In this subtle way, John was singing a dirge to you. A dirge of repentance. And you were supposed to play that game with him. You were supposed to mourn and weep for your sins with him. But then he says, you looked at him and said, he's a fanatic. He's got a demon. He's crazy. We're not playing that funeral repentance game with him. And then he looks at them and he says, I... I am singing a wedding song to you. It's a moment of rejoicing and feasting. And you look at me and you say, he's a glutton. He's not self-disciplined enough. He's a drunkard. He hangs out and invites with people he shouldn't hang out with and invites them to their parties. His critique of them is y'all are like kids who are saying, I don't like this game. I'm taking my ball and going home. And he said, you miss what we're inviting you into. The reason why I want to end with this critique is because in it, Jesus calls us. The point is simple. In moments of doubt, will you at least join in the song of the Redeemer? In moments of doubt, when we sing the dirge of confessing our sins, will you at least confess with us? In moments of doubt, when you say, I don't know what's true, will you at least continue the song of repentance or will you let your heart grow hardened? We don't have to have everything buttoned up to continue to sing the song of repentance so that our heart doesn't grow hard. And similarly, in moments of doubt, will you sing the songs of rejoicing? And you say, but I don't feel the songs of rejoicing in those moments. And Jesus doesn't say you're a bad playmate because you don't feel the funeral or feel the wedding. He just says, will you join in? Will you join with others who are singing the songs of rejoicing with you? Will you sing the songs of praise and worship? Even in those moments of doubt. Again, we don't have to have everything buttoned up to be able to join in the songs that he's leading us in. Not every doubt will be perfectly resolved in this life. Michael said a few months ago, I don't know if you remember this, he said that real faith is strong enough to hold doubt. I think that's a beautiful idea. Not every doubt gets resolved. But the question he's asking us is, will you continue to participate in the places that I'm taking you to? Amen.